one of the most um, tedious tasks that my sweetheart undertakes, and she does so on a regular basis, is to put together our, uh, our family memory albums. It's a lot of work. Uh, whether, whether they're on paper like this old one, um, ah, there's you, 13 years ago, how about that? Um, whether it's that or the way she does them now, digitally, it is a lot of work. They're wonderful, but it is a really huge labor. And we wonder sometimes, Jana and I do, is it really worth it? I mean, we look upstairs at this bookcase we have that is just loaded down with all of our homemade family books, and we, and we have to ask ourselves, is this, is this worthwhile? Why do we make memory albums? And, and here's the answer we always come to. We do it because it impacts the people who follow after us. I want you to just consider what I experienced in our house just last month. Uh, Jana and I host a young adults Bible study at our place twice a month. This great group of uh, young adults had just finished our discussion of scriptures, a great Bible study, and, and we finished. Everybody was scattering. They were going to get more snacks. They were heading to start the games time, and, uh, and I wandered upstairs to go fetch something, and there I found a couple of the young adults poring over some of our early photo albums, and they were laughing at me mainly. They were, they were ooing and aahing. They were, they were getting to know us better. Now think about this. Since Jana and I are part of their spiritual life, part of their spiritual heritage, those family pictures helped them not just get to know our family, it helped these people better understand themselves. When you know more about the beginnings of your spiritual family, you grasp more about the depth of your own spiritual life. You, you, can, you can see this played out. You see it played out when you watch a grandparent sitting with a grandchild and teaching that grandchild about her mommy or her daddy when they were little. It's fascinating. You can see it. Or maybe, you, maybe you've seen it when you go to a, a 50th wedding anniversary party for a Christian couple. And, and this wonderful, godly couple, and all these people are there to celebrate them. And what do they do? They go and they pour over all those old family albums, and they get to know that couple better, and it helps them know themselves better. This universal phenomenon explains the impetus behind Exodus chapter 13. Open your Bible, if you would, to the second book of your Bible, 13th chapter, Exodus chapter 13. And, uh, and let's read verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 13. The Lord spoke to Moses. Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal, it is mine. The key verb there is consecrate. That's why your notes uh, call this section the consecrations. You got, you got a bulletin when you came in, open it up. There's notes in the middle there. You'll see the first section is called the consecrations. Consecrate is a really interesting term. The term is kadesh. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's a word that had a very specific meaning, uh, and it was the same meaning in a number of ancient languages. Kadesh means set aside to be holy. But listen to this. It always signifies the presence of deity. It's the presence of God that makes something holy. Thus, it isn't actually the people are setting something or someone aside to be holy. Kadesh means God has already claimed that thing. God has made it holy by His presence. Humans are merely recognizing that when they set the person or the thing aside. Um, last weekend, I was blessed to be a part of a precious wedding, and, uh, and the bride and groom bought me a special water bottle. Really, really nice. I mean, it's a really nice one. And I looked at it, and I thought, how thoughtful. That's so nice. Um, but when I looked at it, I realized, oh, my goodness, 
Some of the guys with whom I work out uh, have these, this same water bottle. In fact, Dr. Martin, with whom I swim three times a week, he has this water bottle sitting at the end of his lane. And I thought, how will I know which one's mine? And then I turned it around. And it wasn't very difficult to figure out which one would be mine. 84-point font engraved my initials right on there. That's a little bit like Kadesh, okay? The thing's already labeled. It's already claimed by God. It is made holy. It has his imprint on it by his very presence. So consecration, really, consecration is just about acknowledging God's presence. Now, there's, there's two aspects of this. The first is seen in verses 1 and 2, acknowledging God's hand over the future. That, that's what setting aside every firstborn male is holy to God means. It signifies recognizing Yahweh's control of my future. Suppose, suppose you're a Hebrew villager, okay? Not, not just here in Exodus, but, but say 200 years later, as you're living in Israel, you're a Hebrew villager, all right? And you have a ceremony that you go through just as Moses instructs uh, when, when your goat gives birth to its firstborn male offspring, all right? When you go through that ceremony, what, what are you doing? What are you really doing? You're recognizing God's presence in your life. You're acknowledging that this animal, which represents your future, this animal is in God's hands. That newborn child of yours, or that newborn animal, that represents your future. Your future effectiveness, your future prosperity are greatly wrapped up in these little ones. And by obeying Exodus chapter 13, verse 2, you're saying, I recognize, Lord, that my future already has your mark on it. All I am, all I have, all I will be is yours. Wow, that's powerful. What if we did likewise? You know, a similar situation occurs for many of us when we get our annual report from Social Security, right? Or, or we get our, uh, our monthly update on our 401K. Don't look at it from this past week, by the way. Um, what, if, what, if, what if we stopped right before we, ever, before we ever even opened the email that came from our broker? What if we stopped and said, Lord, I consecrate this to you, Kadesh. I acknowledge the Almighty, my covenant God, is present. You're present in my present and my future. You hold my future in your hands. What if I prayed that before I opened that email? What, what if we prayed that at every wedding, at every birth, at every parent's dedication? Lord, among everything else that is going on here, I see your presence in the future. You tell me. If we prayed that, if we prayed Kadesh, would that make a difference in our lives, yes or no? Oh, yeah, you bet it would. And the same goes for recognizing God's hand in our past, which is the point in the next section. Pick it up in verse 3. Verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leavened may be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, uh, you are leaving. By the way, sometimes in your Bible you'll be a little confused. Abib uh, is the same month as the Hebrew month Nisan. They're, they're used interchangeably for different reasons I don't explain right now. Okay, so the month of Abib you are leaving. When the Lord brings, that's Nisan, not the car company. Okay, all right, yeah, all right. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ritual in this month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is to be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for those seven days. Nothing leavened may be found among you. No yeast may be found among you in all your territory. On that day, explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and a reminder on your forehead so the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Yahweh has brought his people from slavery to, to freedom. Israel remembers this with a, with a special festival every year. It runs the week following Passover. This is the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Guys, this is the Hebrew 4th of July, all right? In, in, in my country, we celebrate the 4th of July annual memorial to celebrate the freedom that was gained in the American War of Independence, right? And our forefathers, listen, our forefathers considered this American freedom to be just as miraculous as Israel's. That's why they originally saw July 4th as a holy day. They did. Listen to John Adams, second president of the United States. He wrote this in 1776. Uh, John Adams, with his New England accent, we're told that they're very strong New England accent. He said, this date will be the most important, will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illuminations from one end of this continent to the other, from this side forward and forevermore. Close quote, right? Where did Adams get that idea? Exodus chapter 13. Steeped in the Bible. Your brother in Christ, John Adams, even directly, did you notice this? He even directly borrowed some of Moses' language in that letter. As we noted in Exodus chapter 12 when we studied that, Leaven is used in this festival as a symbol of Egyptian idolatry and slavery. Now, yeast is not always negative in the Bible, but for this metaphor, it certainly is. Moses leads Israel on a seven-day special holiday designed to remove the Egypt from their souls. And as we're going to see throughout Israelite history, this is a serious problem. The enslavement of idolatry continues to persist in their culture. Thus, they need this regular reminder of the miraculous freedom that they have that is only found in God. Now, of course, in our enlightened age, we need no such thing, right? I mean, we, we don't have idols, right? <laughs> What's that? We do? Yeah, we do. Of course we do. We need to get the Egypt out of our souls just as surely as our forefathers did. And one of the best ways to eliminate our idolatry is to stop regularly and recognize our miraculous freedom that is found only in God. Recognizing God's hand over our past, we consecrate ourselves in grateful response. And Exodus 13 shows us that. Look at it. First, we acknowledge God's hand over the future, right? Then we're consecrated by remembering his work in our past. And finally, we experience the blessing of seeing both together. This, this is really cool. That's what happens in verses 11 through 16. You see, God and Moses engage in some really deep, really creative thought here, looking through the lens of the past and the future to see something awesome. Look, look at verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and gives it to you, you're to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn offspring of the livestock you own that are males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a donkey with a flock animal, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons, however much you may want to break their necks. I'm sorry, that's not in the Bible. Uh, verse, verse 14. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. 
out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of man to the firstborn of livestock. That's why I sacrifice the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. Here's two ideas that are being mixed together, the purifying memory of the past and the motivating dedication for the future. Since the firstborn of animals and peoples from Israel were spared during the Passover, they're to be particularly consecrated, not, not just for the future, but because they are so thankful for the past. Now, now think about this. What time of year do Passover and unleavened bread occur? Anybody know what season of the year? When does it always occur? Yeah, in the spring. Are there any country folks here that can tell us um, when it is that cattle and sheep tend to give birth, especially in a pre-industrial age before they had our modern methods of, of productivity? When, when did cattle and sheep tend to give birth? What season of the year? Spring. spring. In fact, spring is called, in this, to this day in Britain, it's called lambing time still. All right? So when you get to the promised land, that's in your future. You need to remember Passover. That's from your past. The two are connected, and they come together in the spring of every year. I love spring. Anybody else love spring? Love spring. The smells of spring are what move me the most. Next spring, when spring comes around, I invite you to go back and walk back here in the woods on our property. And here's what you're going to smell. Just take a big, here's what you're going to smell. It's really woodsy back there, and you're going to smell all the fallen leaves. You're going to smell the last of the decay of the last winter's leaves. It's a, very, it's a very pungent, woodsy scent. You know the smell I'm talking about? You'll smell that. And you know what else you'll smell? At the same time, you will smell that awesome wet earth smell of the green things shooting up through the ground, that, that fresh, very first release of pollen. It's just an awesome, intoxicating scent, and the two are blended back there. You smell them together. That's Exodus 13, 11 through 16. That's what it's capturing. The seeing and the smelling of spring is, is the past and the future together. D you do realize this. More than any other time of the year, spring captures old and new coming together. That's Exodus chapter 13, 11 through 16. Oh, by the way, someone's sure to write me about this, so I need to answer what's up with the donkey reference, right? Let me go ahead and answer this now. Israel is very soon going to discover that a donkey is an unclean animal. <laughs> Thus, a donkey cannot be sacrificed to the Lord. So a clean animal must be offered in the donkey's place so the people will remember God's hand on our past and our future. Fascinatingly, the same is true for the humans born in Israel, right? Human sacrifice will also be forbidden, so an animal must be offered up in place of the human as well. By the way... <laughs> The later Jewish rabbis were very quick to note that this sets up a kind of parallel between humans and donkeys. Um, they were kind of kidding as they wrote about this, but, but they, they did it to point out how stubborn humans can be and how hard it can be to lead them. Uh, those who lead humans can testify that a mule might be an even better uh, parallel than a donkey. But thankfully, human leaders aren't the most important thing. They're not! Human leaders aren't most important. God's direct leadership is what makes all the difference among his people. That, that's clear in the next section. Look, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. 
Because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you from this place. So they set out from Succoth and camped at Etam on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night so they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. As we observe on the right side of our notes, look at the right side of your notes, God leads his people in understanding. He's understanding. He knows their limitations. He especially knows their tendency to return to slavery. That's why he doesn't take them by the main highway by the sea. Now, when this was recorded, that highway was called the Way of the Philistines. It's this road right here. It goes from Memphis uh, in Egypt all the way up to Damascus in Aram, uh, later known as Syria. So, so this is called the way, of, uh, the way of the Philistines. Now, it's really not how it's known throughout most of history because later when the Romans took over this area, they renamed it the Via Maris, the Way of the Sea. And that is what it's called to this day. If you take the highway south from Tel Aviv and you're going down, uh, down toward Gaza, it's called the Way of the Sea to this day. God doesn't have them take that road because during the Exodus, an early Greek-type people had begun to settle along this major trade route. Um, these early Greek peoples, they spoke a kind of form of early Greek. They called themselves the Sea Peoples, but the folks around them in Canaan called them the Philistines, and, and they they were pretty hard to beat. You see, the Philistines, like Egypt, were wealthy, and they were wealthy enough that they had chariots. And the, hands, the, the lands around that flat highway there, the Shephelah, they're so flat, the land is perfect for using the advanced military technology of the chariot, and that made the Philistines a really difficult foe to fight. Even though Israel is appropriately armed for battle, the text tells us they march out for battle, God knows they will very likely quail, no pun, at the sight of Philistine chariots in battle. So he leads them differently. He leads them with understanding of their state. You ever had a friend or a family member become addicted to something? It's awful, right? And they hated it. Even as it devoured them, they hated it. So when that person became sober and they successfully completed a recovery program and it was all exciting and wonderful, you said, didn't you? You said, oh, thank God. Thank God, they will now never, now that they see clearly, they'll never go back to that horrible slavery, right? In fact, they probably told you some form of that. They said, I, I never want to go back to that mess. But when that dear person faced the same kind of overwhelming pain that had led to the addiction in the first place, what happened? They, they felt a renewed struggle with a very strong siren call back toward the addiction, right? Right. Now, most of us, thankfully, have seen God bless his children through many relapses, so we don't despair. <coughs> However, the fear of relapse is why we don't rush newly sober people right out into society, right? We take our time and ease them into the water. That's what God's doing with Israel. They, they have seen great miracles. They know that they aren't slaves anymore. And yet, the, the good, good father wisely is concerned that these Jews who are so fresh from slavery and trauma that, that any trauma at all that they face will send them fleeing back to their old masters in Egypt. He's gentle with them. By the way, one geographical note. Some of your Bibles render the, the body of water in verse 18 as sea of reeds. You see that some of your Bibles say sea of reeds? Let me explain that. Technically, that's correct. 
But please don't think that means they were heading for some shallow little marsh. Um, sea of Reeds was actually the accepted Hebrew name for the entirety of the Red Sea and all of its tributaries. Sea of Reeds just means the Red Sea. It's just the way the Hebrews referred to it. It doesn't mean shallow water. In fact, in, in, in Kings, uh, cha- 1 Kings chapter 9, that exact same phrase, Sea of Reeds, is going to be used for King Solomon's deep water shipping fleet. All right? This is, this is serious blue water shipping fleet on the Sea of Reeds. So it doesn't mean something shallow. These place names, by the way, seem to indicate the route of the Exodus. And that's something about which I often get mail. So if you want to know where I think Etam is and which specific route Moses took as they crossed the Red Sea, where is the real Mount Sinai? Come back next time. We're going to deal with that in chapter 14. All right? Yeah. We'll deal with that next time. For now, the main point is God directly leads his people with sensitive understanding. Further, he keeps his word. And he expects the same of his people. Look, verse 19. Read verse 19 again. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath saying, God will certainly come to your aid. Then you must take my bones with you on this place. Right? Genesis chapter 50, verse 25 is where we hear Joseph's statement about his bones. And in Genesis 50, he uses the exact same word that Moses does in his recitation of Joseph's speech. Uh, The word is yipkod, yipkode, the word we render aid. It's a really, really old word. In fact, Yipkode was an old word when Joseph used it about 1800 B.C. It's, it's used 285 times in the Old Testament. It has an intriguing range of meaning. My favorite rendering of Yipkode comes from a, a later Greek scholar. A later Greek scholar is trying to explain to his Greek audience what the Hebrews mean by this word yipkode. And here's what he said. This is just genius. He said yipkode means longing for something and coming to its rescue. God longs for Israel. He loves his people. And Joseph knew that God would keep the word that he had promised to him, that Jacob's family would live over 400 years in Egypt, and that one day God would lead them out. And he said, take my bones. Now, Based on how the Hebrews viewed the resurrection, I don't think Joseph is so very concerned about his bones. He just wanted his life and his death and and even his remains to reflect God's promises. Would you just think about that sentence for a moment? Joseph wanted his life, his death, even his remains to reflect God's word, to reflect God's promises. Isn't that great? Is that true of us? Is it true of you? God keeps his promises, and he expects the same of his people. When we live and when we die as people of integrity, we exemplify that. Moses took the bones along for that reason, and he took them along to show that Israel could keep a commitment. A couple of generations later, here's what happened. Uh, Joshua 24, Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in a parcel of land that Jacob had purchased. Yahweh leads with understanding. He longs for Israel. He keeps his word, and he provides his very presence. That's the lesson of the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. It guides them. It was always out in front. It was always leading. You ready for this? Fascinating story. Um, I was working this week on the cloud and fire. I was working on this part of the message, and a friend of mine, my, my computer dinged, and a friend of mine sent me a video. Uh, he said, Wayne, I was praying for you. I know you're teaching Exodus 13 this week. And, uh, and this video made me think of, the, of Exodus 13, of the pillar of, of fire, he said. You want to see the video he sent me? Here's what he sent.
is cool. My buddy went on to, to write me the quote. I liked it so much I placed it in your notes. Look what he said. He said, Israel's to be like those ducks jumping in the water after mommy. Following the very present parent is what you are made for. And even though following is scary, the call of the parent is more than the fear of the jump. Close quote. Remember, this text is all about God's presence. That's the running theme. And the cloud and the fire are unmistakable signs of God's very presence. By the way, God's presence in the cloud and fire also protects them, as we'll see next time. Now, as we close, we must note that God grants similar provision for Christians, right? God speaks. He's given us His very Word. And just as He kept His Word to Joseph and Moses and Israel, so He will keep His Word to you and to me in our new covenant. God also gives Christians His presence. You know what he gives? He gives the very presence of his Holy Spirit. The, the pillar and the cloud didn't stay with Israel forever. In fact, sad part of the story that's much later to come, um, at the end of Israel's time of independence, now this isn't the end of their story. The Bible makes it clear there is more, but a very sad chapter. At the end of their independence, Ezekiel has a horrifying vision as he watches the, the very presence of God, the Spirit of God, leave the temple in Jerusalem and ascend to heaven and leave Israel. But believers in Messiah Jesus are promised the eternal presence of God in His Holy Spirit. Just as God moved ahead of Israel in the cloud, so He fires Christians with His guidance through the Spirit. Read with me uh, some scriptures about the Holy Spirit. You read the underlying text with me, please. Starting in uh, John 14, Jesus is speaking. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper, that he may be with you. How long, everybody? Forever. Forever. All God's people said? Amen. That is, who is he? That is the spirit of truth. 1 Corinthians 6, your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. Romans chapter 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Romans chapter 8, for all who were led by the Spirit of God, are children of God. God leads His children. He did it then, He does it now. When I read my friend's commentary about the ducks, it, it made me stop, and it made me think about my life. Of what am I afraid? Where, where am I hesitant to jump after God? In those areas, I know what I must do. I must stop and fix my eyes on the perfect parent who is with me and goes before me always. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. I also, not just looking ahead at the Lord, I can look around me because God gives Christians the fellowship of the saints. We have fellowship with everyone who knows Jesus Christ as Savior. All who trust Him are one body in Christ. You know, that's similar to, in fact, it's even more significant than the body that Israel had and being one nation newly freed under God. The, the first Christians knew that the fellowship of the saints is precious. That's why they were so devoted to meeting together. 
There's a, there's a certain letter. I get this letter a couple times every year. I get a letter like this, some form of this. It comes to me, and it says, Pastor Wayne, we're doing well here in, insert whatever city, but we were just talking about how much we miss Frisco Bible Church. It's not you we miss. <laughs> That's almost always in there. That's just fascinating. I love that. Um, and then they usually say something like this. You know, we study online with you every week after the sermon's posted. Loving the series, by the way. Then they say, what we really miss is the fellowship. And then they go on to describe how being forced to move has made them terribly hungry for all those things they took for granted. They'll often describe life group meetings that they used to kind of groan about, and now they really... And you know, you know that's true. By the way, you know what a life group meeting's like. On your way home, you're always like, that was so great. I'm so grateful we get to live life in the Lord, and I learned it was great. It's wonderful. That's what we're like on the way home. But what are we like on the way to it? Oh, my goodness, I don't have time for this. I can't believe we're going to... I don't have... Right? Am I the only one? <laughs> Stupid people. I don't like them anyway. That's what you say all the way. They, they talk about those conversations in the foyer where you're like, yeah, yeah, hi, hi. I just wanted to say hi to you. I only have time to talk to you. I've got to take my kid. I don't want to talk to you. Right? But suddenly when you don't have them, you, you realize how very precious those were and how important they were. Now, these people know they're, they're committed. They always write me. They're committed to engaging in their new church in the new city, and they know everything will get better once they, they dive in there and pay the price. And when I get those letters, I always smile. I always smile, and I pray for them right then to deeply engage in that new church. And I know they will because I know, reading their letter, that another Christian has just learned about the importance of the fellowship. That fellowship is a gift from God as is our view of the past and the future. We could look at dozens of texts. Let's just, uh, let's just consider this one from Ephesians chapter 1. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment for our inheritance, for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Awesome. Remember how Israel was blessed with a, a view of their past and their future? We see that fulfilled in the Jewish slash Gentile church. Look, look at that. Look at that text. We've got past. We've got present. We've got future. We trusted Jesus. We are sealed in the Spirit. We will receive an inheritance in glory. God gives us the same things as Israel and more because we have these things permanently in Messiah Jesus. Just consider our covenant memorial, would you? Just as Israel was to celebrate the festival of unleavened bread to commemorate their rescue from slavery, so Christians are to celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper. Look, look how the Apostle Paul summarized our representative feast. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, oh, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's why we take communion every month. This is our covenant memorial meal. In this table, we proclaim the greatest news ever, that in Jesus' sacrifice, our sin debt is paid. We were enslaved, folks, we were enslaved in trespasses and sin just as surely as Israel was enslaved in Egypt. But in God's grace through Jesus' blood, we who trust him are set free in our new covenant. All God's people said? Amen. Can I get a hallelujah? hallelujah? Let's praise God together. Close your eyes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. I, again, I just don't even have words to praise you enough. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I deserve nothing.
And you have brought me out of slavery by your grace through Jesus Christ. I pray that will be on my mind all the time. It'll be on my hands. I will see that with all that I do. That your praise will be in my mouth. Because I, I know, I see it in Israel. That can change everything. Thank you, thank you, thank you for setting me free. Thank you that I have a, a past that is redeemed and I have a future in you. And by the way, Lord, we pray for anybody who's studying with us that doesn't have a future in you because, quite frankly, they have not trusted Jesus. I pray for the little boy that I bumped into this morning and got to chat with, and he told me that he doesn't believe in God, but he thought he might come anyway to church. I'm glad he came. I pray you open his eyes to the truth that he is a sinner. I pray that for every single person all around the world who's studying with us, that each one who doesn't know Jesus will see the biblical and experiential truth that you're a sinner. By the way, I know that little boy's a sinner because I saw him, I saw him use too many toilet paper towels in the bathroom and throw them on the floor. So I pray he will know that, <laughs> and so will each of us. And Father, I pray you will open our eyes, open everyone's eyes to the truth that Jesus is what we sang earlier. He is fully God and fully man. And he died for us. Friend, listen, God loves you so much that even though you are a sinner, he sent his only son, Jesus, to take your place, to die in place of you, donkey, because he loves you. And Jesus didn't just stay dead. He, he rose from the dead so that all of us who trust in him could have a future. We could follow him in everlasting life. You know the, the Greek word in the Bible that's used for everlasting there? It's a word that means effervescent and alive, and the Alka-Seltzer never runs out. It, it implies bubbles that don't quit. That's what you have in Jesus. So right now, just trust him. Just say, God, I, I receive Jesus as my substitution. I trust him as my Savior. I believe in Jesus. If you just prayed to trust Christ, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. Raise your hand right now. Good for you. Praise God. Father, I ask you to bless every one of us that in our trust of Christ we will live differently because we see past, present, and future all together in the eternal spring we have in you. That doesn't mean it's always sunshine and roses, but it does mean you're always with us. And that is more than enough. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.